We live in a software-powered world, but many practices in the venture capital industry still lack the technology it invests in. We see innovation increasing at an accelerated pace, whereas many of the VC firms that finance innovation seem a bit stuck in time. Avlak Kohli has a few possible explanations for this irony and a lot of propositions to offset it. CEO of Angelus Venture, he's been leading the platform that adds more flexibility and accessibility to the fundraising process. Among its products, Angelus changed the game by introducing syndicates and last year, the rolling fund model. In this episode, we explore some of the benefits and details of these initiatives, including the main differences between syndicates, rolling funds, and traditional venture funds, best practices for engaging LPs, and the future of the VC industry. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam! Avlak, thank you for uh, being on the show here. It's great to have you. Let's just dive in real quick. I think it's good to set the stage uh, about you because you know, you're an operator, you're a founder, you've built a bunch of companies. So talk a little bit more about your experience. Share with us a little bit why you dove into a CEO role of a company. So maybe set the stage with that. Yeah, for sure. So I'll do a quick, quick background. I was born in the Middle East and uh, actually lived in several different countries through my childhood and, and uh, also high school. Went from Middle East to India to Toronto, Canada, and then uh, went to university actually in Waterloo. So I studied software engineering. So that's my background. That's the quick backdrop. Moved to San Francisco Bay Area when the last financial crisis happened in 2008. So landed right at the time when Sequoia released the RIP Good Times memo. Didn't quite know what it meant for me, but uh, you know I was here, uh, starry-eyed, like ready to go, build something. For the first few years, I uh, tinkered on different projects. I was working at uh, as a software engineer at a few different companies. Most of those companies actually did, did quite well. And then started on my founder journey. And over the years, I've actually started multiple companies. Uh, one of them was bought by Square in 2015. I joined as director and uh, was with them through the IPO. And uh, this next company was actually bought by Postmates, which was eventually bought by Uber. I had decided after the last acquisition that I was going to step back and uh, and take a break from operating and founding companies. I've been doing it pretty pretty um, consistently for ten or eleven years by that point. And uh, Naval approached me, who's an investor in all my prior companies. He approached me to consider stepping in as CEO uh, to spin out Angelus Venture and to run that. I, you know, after a little bit of uh, kind of uh, digging through the business and and, and working with him on it officially accepted the role in mid-July of 2019 um, and just been having a having a blast uh, since then. So it's just been, it's been awesome. I'll pause there for any other, uh, if, if it's more useful to go into detail. There's a lot of things I want to explore and, you know, I want to get into a little bit more about the Angelus business model and all yep. that stuff, how you guys have scaled this new product with rolling funds. That's an interesting topic. And then really just everything around the, the ecosystem that Angelus is building you know, I wanted to ask you one quick question, just as we look at the kind of current environment, it's starkly contrast to your arrival to the Silicon Valley in, what was it, 2009 or, sorry, 2008, 2008 yeah, RIP good times. And now it's like, man, the good times, they're not resting in peace, they're alive. And what is your current kind of just feel about the, the current environment and just would love to kind of take your temperature on that. I mean, ultimately, I think it's great for founders, but would love to hear your kind of your feeling about the, the current environment and how kind of benefits AngelList and we'll double click on kind of what AngelList is exactly for those that don't know and how you're planning on scaling that. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, so the way, you know, the way that I think about it is um, I really think about it in terms of technology. And when you take a look at the arc of technology across all time, it provides leverage to society. It helps us move forward, helps advance society. And what's been happening over the last uh, couple of decades with the internet connecting everyone instantly, you have this global communications network with all of these different advances, the rate of technology innovation is actually increasing. Again, I can't point to a specific chart uh, to prove that, but uh, I can definitely feel that in the last uh, decade that I've actually been in, in, in Silicon Valley. And the everything moves in cycles, of course. So you have a, you know, the cycle that I came into was RIP Good Times, and it was sort of a bit of a crater. And then from there, it moved back up and then down and back up and down. But all the while, it still keeps going up and to the right. And the pace of innovation has actually accelerated. And we're in such a different time now uh, where I feel like the good times has been amplified and it's just like there's nowhere to go but up. But there's something more systemic there. Obviously, there are some tailwinds with pandemic accelerating uh, technology because almost overnight, the demand for technology companies went up. In addition, there, there is an artificial attraction of capital with the interest rates being at zero and, and the Fed printing money. But underneath all of this, there's still real te technological progress happening, and that's actually accelerating right now. And so, you know, while we look at all the different ebbs and flows, there's still an up and to the right movement in terms of technology itself. And when we think about what is funding this technology, it's called venture capital, right? Venture capital is risk capital. Doing anything new like this requires a lot of upfront capital, any sort of technology development requires a lot of upfront capital. And that's what venture capital is. It's a set of investors that have come together to invest in these startups that will then go pursue new technology. And most of them won't work, but that's fine. The ones that do literally change society forever. And so when we then think about AngelList, what AngelList is, is it's a platform to allow many more of these uh, venture capital funds to be formed, like yours. You're out there, uh, you know, uh, choosing which founders you want to back that they're going to go change the world, um, and you're able to create your fund, and in this case, a rolling fund on the Angels platform. So we're a uh, almost a, a a meta way of seeing many more venture funds in the world that will then go back all of the founders that will create the next generation of companies that will move society forward. Um, and so that's the way to think about what's happening. Uh, in the world and how Angelus itself is uniquely driving and accelerating some of that change. I find it ironic, these venture capitalists, I'm friends with a lot of them, they've been investing in technology and innovation, yet the business of venture capital hasn't changed for decades or like, has it ever changed? So like, why did it, why did it take so long for someone to come in and like rethink venture capital when like the venture capitalists themselves are all about disruption and transforming? Why do you think that is? Yeah, it, it's a good question. I think some of it just has to do with the nature of venture capital and what makes a, a great VC. And there, there are a lot of uh, network effects in the business. There's brand in the business. For example, if you take a look at some of the top, top, top venture firms and the partners, they will still be here uh, decades from now because founders ultimately want to be surrounded and work with investors that have built and been part of building large companies. So there is a bit of that. You have this network effect, this brand effect, 
that will keep these uh, firms in business. I think the other reason is that when you think about VC and then you think about operating, they're two different worlds entirely. Actually, the strengths of what it takes to be a great VC and the strengths of what it takes to be a great operator, um, they're two very different types of strengths. One actually has a very strong feedback loop almost daily. If you're operating, you literally have a daily report that the entire company runs on. Whereas the other one, your feedback loops are much, much longer and they actually, sometimes it can take a decade to know if you made a great decision or not in, in investment. So I think that's another part of the reason as to like why it's taken a while. Um, and then I think third is it, it does require the right combination of people to come together to rethink some of the infrastructure that's needed. And, and when we think about Angelus itself, the innovation that's moving forward is a combination of design, engineering, uh, legal, and fund operations all coming together, creating a vertical stack that allows us to you know, create new products like the rolling fund. So I think these are some of the reasons why it's taken so long uh, for it to actually hit DC. But again, you know, for me, uh, stepping into venture, I actually, when I stepped into it, I really viewed it as a financial platform. And even the way we build products and the ethos of how we build products at Angelus is very much from software lens first. How can we build software to get infinite leverage on the problems that we're trying to solve. And so that's a very different approach than most other infrastructure providers in the VC industry. So I think it also just requires the right type of company and orientation on how you solve problems. Yeah, just to draw a parallel there, like my good friend David Velez at Newbank, one of the largest neobanks in the world, he likes to say that they're a tech company that happens to be in financial services, right? Whereas yep. all the incumbents, they're banks and they happen to try to use technology to build their business. So I think there's a clear distinction there. I say to our team that you know we're not competing with companies in our industry. We're actually competing with Square, Stripe, Google, Facebook. We're competing with all tech companies because we're competing with them for talent. Because we're all software technology-driven companies. And the goal of a company, a software company, is to consistently innovate consistently ship new products. If you're not shipping new products that hit product market fit, you're dead. It's just a question of when, right? And, and so that's how we think about it. We don't think about ourselves as competing with uh, companies in our industry. We think about competing with all tech companies because that's really ultimately who we're competing with for talent. That makes sense. And let's talk about the fundamental differences between a rolling fund and a traditional fund. I've had a lot of uh, investors on here and think that people are relatively familiar with like the kind of two and 20 model and seed, you know, series A, all the different kind of stages of of venture. Let's talk a little bit more about the, just the fund itself. And I can attest to why I decided for a rolling fund, but maybe for the benefit of our audience, explain a little bit more about the main differences that you see and, and why people choose that. Yeah. So traditional funds and rolling funds, they're uh, effectively talking about a concept or, or a vehicle called venture funds. And venture funds allow a, a GP, who's the fund manager, to collect capital from LPs, investors, group it together to then invest in multiple companies. For most of the actually better part of several decades, uh, all funds were raised under a traditional fund structure. And what that would look like is you start a fund and it's fund number one. You're excited. You want to start a fund. You're great. You're going to set up a traditional fund and you start your fundraise, you now need to get an anchor LP who's going to put most of the money in. You have to raise all the capital within 6 to 12 months, maybe 18 months. 
but then you have to shut it down for new capital. You cannot take a new capital. And then you move into deployment, which is investing in companies. And uh, if you do well, then you have to restart that process all over again on fund two, and then fund three, and then fund four. What's crazy about it is for majority of the time that you're, you have a fund, you're not actually raising capital. You're not, you're not able to use the most marketable moments of your, uh, of your fund, which are portfolio markups, to raise new capital. And raising capital is a sales game. Uh, you want to make sure that you can close capital when uh, LPs have the, have the strongest desire to invest in, in, in your company and in your, in your fund. And so with a rolling fund, what we did was we said, how, do, how can we actually solve some of these problems and make a rolling fund your forever fund? Why would you actually, like, why do you actually need to go raise fund one, two, three, and four, and so on? And what we did was we found a way to actually create a structure where you can always raise capital. You're always open for business to take a new capital. And on top of that, we enabled it for general solicitation. And general solicitation means you can publicly talk about your fund and publicly fundraise because now you have an incentive to. You can accept capital anytime. With a traditional fund, you can't generally solicit. Most traditional funds, if not all, actually can only happen through closed networks. Uh, and it has to be someone introducing you to someone else. You go to a Zoom meeting, you go to a coffee meeting, and then they commit. So your overall leverage on a traditional fund is a lot lower. Whereas with a rolling fund, you can tweet it out, and then you have the entire network come to you. Uh, one of our rolling fund managers was sharing, uh, sharing with me that uh, he tweeted out his fund, and Michael Dell DM'd him on Twitter. And he's like, I never would have even thought to go to Michael Dell. He, I didn't, he, he, he was just, he was kind of like, I wouldn't even know how to reach him, right? Like he reached out, Michael Dell reached out to wanting to invest in his rolling fund. So it enables all sorts of new behaviors. And that's why we're seeing such a massive move into rolling funds. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I remember when the rolling fund announcement and it was a lot of, got a lot of fanfare in the first couple of months last year, right? You rolled it out last year, yeah. right? And there was also like a lot of like criticism about it or like, I just didn't understand the criticism. Like to me, it was like criticizing guacamole or something. It's just like, it's better. It's good. And like it, it adapts to founders, particularly emerging fund managers, right? Which mm-hmm. we all know that we need more fund managers and emerging managers. Like I thought about starting a fund for a long time, but it's just, I didn't want to go through the hassle. I got a quote to set it up with a traditional kind of tech you know, law firm. And it's fifty hundred thousand dollars, and then, and you got this big bang fundraising you got to do. It's like got to have a, a closing, and so this was just like amazing for founders and operators. To me, it's a dream because if I know founders well, it's no one likes the administrative back office stuff, right? Mm-hmm. You're a founder, right? What was the appeal to you? Like when Naval comes to you and he's like, "Hey, you know, I've invested in a bunch of your companies. You're a founder. You've you scaled companies. You sold companies." come work for me and, and be the CEO of this new venture inside AngelList. Like what was the draw for you? And like, what was the main thing that kind of was the tipping point for you? It's like, oh, I'm getting on board with this. So I'd say there were two. One was at that time when I joined, AngelList was seeing uh, just through the funds on the platform was those funds were investing in 20% of all the top tier USVC deal flow at that time. Today, our official publicly posted number is 51%, but unofficially, it's much higher. So the, the, just the rate at which we're seeing everything in tech, we are the number one source of 
overall trends. Um, we know all the information way before anyone else in the world does. So that was one big drop, just being at the center of the information flow. And then the second uh, was that there was a there were all the makings of a financial platform, right? Because when I joined, um, Angelus Venture was uh, had syndicates, had had traditional funds, and was running the full stack, including banking. So we were also run, we're running the banking for all these funds. And the very interesting thing is, when, once you're in the uh, money flow, you can actually start building a lot of products around that. And that's a very defensible, differentiated position to be in. And I saw this playbook play out at Square extremely well, where once you're in, in the flow of dollars, you can then start routing where the dollars go. And what I mean by that is you can build products that add so much value to your customers that they'll just want to keep those dollars in the ecosystem. And that's what, you know, when we looked at Angelus Venture, that's what stood out to me was this has all of the makings of a large financial platform. And the question is, how do you amplify it and how do you accelerate? How do you go even faster? How do you make it even larger? Um, but a lot of those, those characteristics were there. Uh, so that's the second reason is just the ability to build and scale out a very large financial platform. Uh, those are the two main things for me. And let's talk about the subscription piece. Like, I think that's a unique kind of feature. You talked about the general solicit, which is attractive. You know, one, if you have an audience, it's the 506C and first 506B, right? This is a regulation under Jobs Act that allows you to, to publicly say you're raising capital. I haven't actually really leveraged that a whole lot yet, but mm-hmm. while we're on the podcast, like, you know, I'm going to, at the end, I'm going to send a, I haven't even solicited any, any capital from all the listeners yet, but uh, maybe this is a good episode to do it because you're here. And so maybe I'll leave it till the end to share that. But when you think about the LP base and you've got rolling funds, you've got a traditional fund, you've got syndicates. Walk me through your thoughts on like, you know, syndicates, where's the place for that in the ecosystem? It seems like that's been a huge product for Angelus as well. And and how did that kind of dovetail into what we're doing with rolling funds today? Talk a little bit more about those kind of three options and like where you see the use cases for those three. Yeah. So I would say for syndicates, Syndicates are really good for people who are just starting out and they want to build a track record. And uh, with Syndicate, what you can do is you can start building up a following. And what you need to go do is you start getting access to great founders, great startups to invest in. And you bring those deals to your syndicate, which are basically uh, is your following of LPs and investors, and you share the information with them and they can can make a uh, a deal-by-deal decision. And when I say share the information with them, it's all hyper-private, uh, confidential, um, and of course, with the buy-in from the founder. So that's great for uh, emerging, you know, for someone who's just starting off and wants to build a track record. We also see syndicates being very useful uh, for top-ups or uh, pro rata rounds. So, you know, you have your rolling fund. Let's just say you want to invest 100000 from your rolling fund, but then you have even more allocation in the company you can syndicate out the rest to then top it up to maybe 150 additional, so 250 total check size. Uh, I do this all the time, by the way. I have my rolling fund. I have the thesis on the rolling fund, the, uh, the check size. I make sure the rolling fund gets the first bite. And then I'll have more allocation. Maybe it's because my pro rata that I'll then top up personally, or I'll bring a couple more people into it, um, uh, like one or two people into it. But that, it's very, very um, uh, private, and that's the way to use a syndicate as well. Um, the traditional fund product is usually uh, good for 
anyone who has a very large anchor or, or uh, and they're good to go. And that is where we're actually finding traditional fund product very useful. And then rolling fund, honestly, we're, we're seeing a lot of pull there. Uh, it is our fastest growing product ever in the history of Angelus. And uh, it is, it, and, it, it, and it's really fast growing because it allows you to start without any friction. It's amazing, right? You just get started. Like for example, I started my rolling fund and I rolled my personal investing into it. And then over different quarters, um, uh, I've actually had more LPs join. I don't spend much time fundraising, to be honest on it. It's just there. And then I'm like, oh, nice. I've got a few more LPs. Great. I just have more capital to invest. And then at some point, uh, when I actually start fundraising for it and I start bringing capital into it, great. I'll be able to scale it up. But there's no pressure. You can scale it up and you can let it grow. And you let your portfolio speak for you. That's the beauty of it. Make great investments. They do well. You have amazing co-investors. Boom, you can go raise more capital. That's the beauty of it. It never shuts down for capital. It's always open. Uh, so that's that's where we're seeing rolling funds really fit for people who really like that flexibility and, and don't want to handle any of the headaches. They want to go try and find an anchor. Great, just put it as a rolling fund and then let it scale up. And some of these rolling funds are scaling up fast. Because uh, again, it also is very beneficial for LPs. They can come in, start with a small bite size. And then as they see your portfolio, they can actually increase their bite size. And we're seeing this happen consistently where people are actually investing more into a rolling fund versus less. Are you seeing like the average rolling fund? Like, is there a, if you look at kind of your customer base and like you look at the capital AUM, Mm -hmm. where does that typically sit? I don't know if you can talk about some of the numbers, but in terms of like number of managers and like what that's looking like, you guys ramped up. And I think that probably the demand is greater than what you can deliver on, which is a, the dream of any company when you launch a product, right? You want to mm-hmm. have tons of demand. Yeah. If you could talk a little bit more about kind of the typical fund size, maybe who are, are these operators? These are founders. Like, do you have any kind of segmentation of who's running these rolling funds kind of out of the gates? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we haven't shared any of the uh, numbers publicly on the average fund size, median fund size. What I can say is capital being driven to rolling funds is very large and it's a hockey stick. It's about as vertical as you can go on a, on a, on a growth rate. I, I believe it, man. Um, I believe it. And uh, in terms of, you know, in terms of segmentation, it really is across the board. We have people who never, actually like yourself, who never would have con- or considered a traditional fund, but didn't want to go through the headache of like the administrative headache to deal with it, are instantly coming into a rolling fund. We have people who have been in traditional VC coming to a rolling fund. So it really is a mix of fund managers that are using it. Some folks actually have a traditional fund and a rolling fund. They're doing the rolling fund for all the pro ratas. So we are seeing a full mix of people using it. In terms of the founders, operators, we see a lot of very credible founders and operators starting rolling funds. And interestingly enough, that actually is a very good thing, uh, we think, for the ecosystem because these are the founders and operators that would be writing uh, you know, a 5K check, a 10K check into a company, and then referring and then sharing the deal with uh, another VC so that they can go do the round. But instead, now they're writing $250,000 checks into a company, not, you know, not 15, 250,000 into a company, and then referring, around, uh, referring it out. And so we're seeing a lot of very uh, interesting emerging behavior uh, where you now have these credible founders, operators who other founders want to work with, have them involved, um, and and they have enough skin in the game for it to make sense. I'm just starting out. I would love some advice from you. Like we had our first 
kind of partial quarter, right? Like I had my first closing last quarter. We deployed one check at the end of the quarter because it was just kind of money came at the end. We now have about half a million, a little more, maybe 600,000 and probably another three or 400,000 in quarterly commitments that are coming in in the next couple of weeks. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm going to end up, you know, probably doing five or six or maybe seven investments this this coming quarter. And when I look at this, we have one investment that's already kind of 4X, like, you know, just like out of the gates, like in, in a few months, just got marked up immediately. It seems like there's an amazing opportunity to leverage that event for the 100%. next quarter, right? Like, or, yep. or even or even the existing quarter. How are you seeing the like communication with existing LPs? Are you seeing like newsletters? Like I see Sahil killing it, like on all these different mediums. What are the best practices there and what's being super effective? Yeah, I would say best practices really come down to being transparent and and, uh, authentic to the way you're investing. And, you know, as you have a markup sharing that, or maybe even sharing as part of an update or quarterly update is a really good way to get your LPs engaged. And honestly, those LPs referring you to other LPs to bring their friends into, into your fund. And so a lot of what we see are updates that are, one, being shared authentically, meaning in the medium that their fund manager is most comfortable with. Uh, for example, we don't see all rolling funds launching on Twitter. Each rolling, we, do see, we see quite a few, but some of them have their own networks that they want to promote through or their own mediums that they promote it through. So I, I would say that the success really depends on the manager, like the, the, the different tactics that are used. The one that most of them do use are the updates and quarterly updates and quarterly updates just talking about how the fund is doing and specifically the markups. Because when you can show, hey, I just, you know, here's a company I invested in and Andreessen's now leading the round or, hey, here are multiple companies I invested in Andreessen, Sequoia, et cetera, leading the round. It's showing a strong signal that you are getting in before the top tier uh, venture investors are. And that, I think that's the narrative that you want to be able to tell to get people excited. Um, the other thing is uh, that you always want to have a unique viewpoint. You want to you have something very uh, credible to say where LPs are learning from you. Because when you think about what's actually happening when an LP is investing, what they're inherently saying is, I trust you with my capital that you're going to invest it way better than I can because you have some very specific knowledge and understanding about the domain that you're investing in or call it about the way in which you're investing or the way you pick founders and that I am paying you through management fees and carry that you are going to go make that investment. So one of the other things that we see as extremely successful are, are basically when an LP is learning from the GP authentically, they will invest. Um, and so that's the other piece, like just having something very unique to say uh, something that other LPs can learn from. That's also why, and I think Sato uh, ends up doing very well. He has, Every time he talks, he has something new and unique and a unique insight to share. Um, and, and, and if you notice, he also then talks about other company he has gotten access to, other companies he's gotten access to in the past. So you kind of add that unique viewpoint plus ability to get access to great companies. That's your color combo right there. Yeah. I've been in Latin America too long, as I said, Sahil. <laughs> I was in you know, Latin America for a long time now. So one quick question for you on that, just to double click on. In your perspective, do you think that the ability to pick or the ability to source is more valuable just as a general fund manager. What's your two cents on that? The ability to pick or the ability to source. Oh, I, I actually think um, all of them. So 
the way I think about it is it's you need to have great deal flow. You need to have great judgment. And then you need to have access. So deal flow is a sourcing. If you're not, if you don't have that naturally happening, then you're not seeing the right deals. Um, access means, uh, or judgment means that you're making the right decision um, mm-hmm. when you're investing. And then access means the founders want you on the cap table and they will, they want you in terms of giving you the right amount of allocation uh, to be on the cap table. Uh, so that's the way I think about it. It's like, it's access, or sorry, it's deal flow, judgment, access. Got it. And on the access piece, like, what do you think the qualities or characteristics that you see where you carve out allocation more, I mean, with the obvious of like building value, right, through your network or whatever, but what, what else do you see there as the kind of primary driver for allocation? Yeah, I think it comes down to what is the founder trying to solve, right? If it's signaling, it's going to be brand. And signaling means that you have the founder gets you involved and then they're going to use that name to help with uh, corralling more investors or talent. Uh, so that's a signaling thing. It's not how do you stand out from the noise? How do you stand out above the crowd from all the other startups? That's where the signaling, which means brand, comes into play. Then you have the um, advice and really just helping in the day-to-day with go-to-market or product or sales or marketing. And that's where you have to roll up your sleeves and really help uh, the company. And so those are the two broad categories that that I can think of right now. I'm sure there are some other ones, but those are two broad categories that I can think of in terms of when and why founders actually want to have investors involved in the company. And just to go back to the rolling fund for a second, 99 LPs, right? That's the max out. Is there any, I mean, I think we're going to get to that really quickly. What's the, is there a workaround for that? If like, and you just then increase the ticket to like minimize the LP, like how would you question for future self? Yeah, so these limits are actually SEC limits. And if you double-click on it, it's actually 99 non-qualified purchasers and then 1,999 qualified purchasers. And what we do automatically is when a fund reaches the 99 investor limit, we actually split and we create a parallel fund. And we put all of the non-qualified purchasers, qualified purchasers, uh, for people that don't know, is anyone who has um, less than $5 million in assets and qualified purchases above $5 million in assets. Um, and what we do is we put all of the non-qualified purchasers into one fund and all the qualified purchasers into another fund. And that effectively gives you the ability to keep scaling uh, your rolling fund. So that's what we automatically do. So you, you don't have much to worry about on that front. And it turns out that most people that actually invest in rolling funds um, past a certain check size, they actually are qualified purchasers. Sometimes people will uh, accidentally uh, state the wrong accreditation, um, but they're, they're in fact qualified purchasers. So you have a lot of runway there. On the qualified purchaser, let's actually accreditation like disadvantage, right? If you don't have a certain net worth, there's like you're excluded from this asset class, which has been the historical. Yep. And we can talk a little bit about crowdfunding in a second. I know that's not your focus, but maybe it is in the future because you know you guys are pretty geared up for lots of different things to do kind of quick question on the accredited investor. I have a lot of international investors, entrepreneurs that are building top tech companies in Brazil and Colombia and Mexico. The accreditation, is that something that is required no matter what? And can you have a local public accountant certify it? And have you seen any like streamlined process for enabling that to happen? So there's just like 
you don't have to, each person doesn't have to get their accountant, but there's like maybe, is that a service that AngelList offers or is there a service provider mm-hmm. for that? Yeah, so we uh, for at AngelList Venture, like we actually package everything. We we have a um, we have a flow that an investor goes through to be able to accredit and state what their accreditation is, and when we make it easy for them to include their accountant or lawyer or anything like that to be able to say what their accreditation is. So we make it very very simple for that process. And I apologize, my dog's barking in That's the background. Right. <laughs> no worries. I'm sure, I'm sure she heard some noise and thinks it's an intruder. That's okay. Um, She's ready to protect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so the uh, for, for the accreditation, and especially for international, there are... Uh, so what the SEC has is there's a set... Literally, it's a checklist and options you can choose of which one you can pick. And there are a set of them that we can actually use for international uh, investors as well. But uh, at some point, the easiest, most frictionless... Uh, approach actually is just to add your advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer, or accountant, just to say, hey, this person meets these accreditation requirements and they sign it. And that's it. That's actually the easiest um, uh, approach that most people take. Yeah, it makes sense. And there's like someone that can just be your go-to person there that does that and reviews it and signs it. That's awesome. How are most of the rolling fund managers thinking about like following capital? Are you seeing, is that mainly Mm -hmm. coming through the SPV? when you've got your allocation or like, how should I think about that as an investor? Is there a right strategy or is there just different strategies? Yeah, just different. We, we There have been multiple approaches. One is doing a whole new fund just for pro ratas. Another one is uh, doing it from future rolling funds and then the LPs that continue investing to get uh, allocation and access. And then another one is starting up an SPV and giving preferred allocation to the LPs that want to invest in that SPV for the follow-on. Uh, allocation. So we're we're seeing multiple approaches. Um, to be honest, there there's no you know there's no one right approach. Um, it really depends on what the fund manager is looking to optimize for. And you can imagine as well, by the way, on the you know on the uh, SPV approach, you can create a blind pool of SPVs are ready to go and and have that allocated ahead of time, uh, and that would actually be the, your pro rata part that you then put into the company. So there's there's many different ways to do it. The way we think about it is we've given all the building blocks uh, for a fund manager to choose which one makes sense for their for their strategy. I like that. If you have it kind of teed up, then you have the allocation, you're ready to go. You just bring in the LP. And yeah. I guess it's nice to have deep, a few deep-pocketed LPs that can just come out and write a million-dollar check if necessary or whatever whatever is needed to kind of keep the the pro rata. Yeah, and it can also be just part of the conversation when you're when you're raising from LPs around hey. This is how much that we, you know, this is how much we expect in proratas. So when you think about investing the capital, maybe you want to have this much allocated for proratas later. There, there's so many different ways, and like I mentioned, you can also put all of that into a blind pool into an SPV, and that becomes your prorata SPV, and that is your capital that's set aside. Uh, or you can actually just do it from future rolling funds. Uh, any of these options work uh, work quite well. That's really cool. One question I had: This is could be a global business, right? Like you guys are right now, you're very focused kind of locally in the region. And what does the long-term business look like? Like, where is it, where are we going from here with this? I mean, is the vision that every operator, instead of just being an angel investor, you have mm-hmm. your fund? I mean, I saw like Naval's spearhead stuff that he had. That to me is a brilliant model because then you're kind of like perfect product. It's almost like scouting as a service. And there's all these cool things that can happen. Just scale this as much as we can. Are there ancillary mm-hmm. products that we can layer on top of this? Where are we going? The way to think about it is 
Uh, Angelus Venture has three primary business lines and customers, GPs, LPs, and then founders. And on the GP side, every credible founder operator is going to have a rolling fund. And it's they're all going to have a rolling fund because they all have the network. It's their network that's actually going on to start the next generation of companies. Uh, and we're going to essentially move the capital to them so they actually can start investing and investing uh, enough money for these for their network to start companies. So every credible founder operator will have a rolling fund. On the LP side, we're essentially going to be uh, bringing in a lot more capital to then start anchoring through these rolling funds, right? So you can kind of see how both of them connect. More capital coming in, we can literally put more rolling funds into business. Uh, so every credible founder operator starts a rolling fund. We drive a lot of the capital to that rolling fund. And then on the founder side, we see a world where Every single founder, when they go to start a company, uh, they're going to tap a button. They're going to get a venture-backable company with Angelus Venture. Uh, it'll get everything all embedded in one place, uh, including the incorporation, including cap tables, including uh, RUVs, which is what we just launched, roll-up vehicles, uh, all of it in one place will be the entire financial infrastructure uh, for the founder as well. So we see a world where all of it happens on Angelus Venture. Uh, and whether you're a GP, you tap a button, you get a fund, or you're an LP, or you're a founder, you tap a button, you get a venture backed company. We're going to handle it all. Yeah, and, and when you have the venture back company set up, so it's like Stripe Atlas connected to a network. at That point, it's more like Stripe Atlas that then provides you like it's a one click provides you the entire infrastructure, including cap tables and 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 banking and all of it. Versus yeah. Stripe Atlas, you do it, and then you have to go, you know, you have to then go create. You said, interestingly, Stripe Atlas has the vision, but never integrated everything in one place. Um, we are actually looking at integrating all of it in one place versus having to go hop and go, you know, create. Because um, you, you do Stripe Atlas, it helps with the incorporation, but then you have to go choose a different banking provider, and then you have to choose cap table provider, and it's it's just all disconnected. We actually think there's a much better way for anyone who's starting a venture backable company. Do tap a button and get everything integrated in one place. By the way, we do this with venture funds. You're rolling fund, you effectively tap the button, you had one form, and it, we give everything. Everything was done. We do all the legal paperwork, the banking, the integrations, the portfolio, all of it, legal reviews, everything. But when you think about starting a, a company, okay, gotta go start a C corporation. Then you have to figure out the number of authorized shares. And then you have to figure out Delaware or not. There's just all these decisions that are, to be honest, pointless decisions. Why are you making all these decisions again and again? By the way, I've started so many companies in terms of incorporating. And every single time I do it, I'm like, why am I making these decisions all the time? Just a decision tree that is unnecessarily like just over and over having to make the decision. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't Um, make like every single founder, every single founder is doing this. And then they're paying lawyers huge amounts of money to do this. But they're all, by the way, they're all meant to be the exact same structure. You do a Delaware C corporation, ideally 10 million authorized shares. You do an 83B elect. Like, there are like clearly steps that are not that complex. They're not that co- they're complex when you learn about it, but not that complex. You just, you can build it all into one integrated flow. Totally, man. This is exciting. Well, listen, I'm a fan. I'm happy to to be the first rolling fund in Latin America. Hopefully, we'll trailblaze and uh, bring some additional. As soon as you guys open it up more aggressively and scale this thing, uh, count on me to be a supporter and 
I'm a fan of the product. Uh, it's enabled me to focus on a bunch of other things that are you know, around deal flow and building value for founders, right? The things that give me a competitive edge. It doesn't give yep. me any competitive edge to manage the back office of a venture fund. Like if anything, yep. it's like most founders absolutely hate anything administrative because you're not building and you're not creating value. So I think the genius product, it's amazing to see how it's all evolved from like venture hacks in the back in the day. I remember, I think I bought one of the spreadsheets to like calculate my, my cap table <laughs> like back in the day. Cause you know, I was in, yeah. I was in Columbia at the time. Like there was no venture ecosystem at all. Right. Like when, back yeah. when I started, you know, I was hungry for information. The, the idea of a safe didn't even exist. So not to be all like grandpa, like, you know, I walked 11 <laughs> miles in the snow real quick to get to school, but you know, shit's changed. Right. Uh, so, yeah. so thank you for, for making that. The mission is amazing and got product hunt in the mix also as a, the jobs platform. If we throw in the whole angel network, the angelist network. And I mean, I just don't see this is to me is like the next JP Morgan, like company of the future, because like, it's just very clear to me when I look at kind of where it's all headed. And I say that as a customer and then also just as like a, someone that sees it all evolving. Right. So yeah, uh, I think it was a smart move. I know as a founder, like, you know, the idea of being a CEO of another company, that's probably, you had to probably think about it a little bit because how long did it take you from those first conversations with Naval to like, all right, are, are you in just because Naval's got like a crazy vision and the traction was insane? Or did it take you a while? Because, you know, you've got a lot of optionality. What was the time horizon from first conversation to obviously a long history before that with, with him investing? But tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, that was uh, six months, I, I want to say. Yeah, okay. I think it was six months. And uh, a lot of that was also just wrapped up the company. And I, I was still in ex exploratory phase, was traveling. I think I was in Japan for a bit. Um, I was just traveling in, uh, in Asia for, for a little while and also just exploring new ideas and just generally decompressing. Um, and then also just generally getting an idea of the venture business. I, I did not come from venture. In fact, I, at first I said, hey, I'm probably not the right fit because I know nothing about venture. I, I Angel invested a, a ton, but um, just the true venture, I just didn't have any sense of it. But that's also why I, I think it's, it's, been, it's been really good because uh, you know, I've come in with absolutely no preconception of how venture is supposed to work. And then instead just asking, why, like, why doesn't it work this way? And and that's why I think the conversations are like so energizing. It's like, wait, why why don't things work this way? Because I have no preconception. I have no. I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of you know when PayPal started. Uh, it was usually it was actually like they they would hire people that weren't coming from finance because you can essentially approach every problem with uh, sort of fresh perspective. And so even when we hire for Angelus Venture, it's rare that we're we're actually hiring someone who's coming in from venture experience. In fact, majority of the company does not have any venture experience. Now, of course, you have to solve for context. How do you provide context? That's very important. But what also comes with it is then people can ask the question of like, wait, why, why do things work this way? Why, why can't they work this way? And then that's where a lot of the interesting ideas actually come about. I actually have this little tweet on my uh, Twitter account about guided wandering. It's from, uh, I don't remember where it's from. I think it's from a Jeff Bezos quote. Um, this idea of guided wandering is you're just following your hunch and you ask a question, you go explore. Uh, and, and that's what it kind of, it feels like for a lot of time at Angelus Venture is, wait, why are things this way? Or what if you do this and this and this? And I find that very energizing. Yeah. Manufacture some serendipity by like 
moving and being a different place and then discovering. And I think that it takes an outsider, right? I mean, this isn't yep. going to be built by someone that's in the mix. Like, you know, Rich Barton is re- transforming real estate. The, the guy doesn't come from real estate. He came from a completely different industry. And and then he goes in and says, let's redesign this market. So uh, to me, it, it it makes a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, I think it's, you're probably not having a lot of trouble. You mentioned you're competing with a lot of talent. However, that talent is is global. And yeah. you know, as we've seen, it's, it's now become decentralized, uh, just like my LP base. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> love it. <laughs> on that note, that's awesome. Yeah, on that note, man, that's good. Let's wrap up. Thanks so much for being on the podcast, man. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Avlo Koli, CEO of Angelus Venture. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply to our fellowship program and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts for more talks with great founders and investors like him. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.